Hi, I'm Kimmy Robertson. Hey, Ben, this is David Duchovny. Twin Peaks is over 30 years old. There's so much more to learn about Twin Peaks. I, we recommend you pick up our book, Twin Peaks Unwrap the Book, to find out even more about the show that you love. We have tons of great stuff. We have over 100 interviews. We have commentary from the community. We have us. We have some great photos that have never been seen by most folks. I think if you're a diehard Twin Peaks fan, you're going to absolutely love this book, and you will definitely learn something new. So pick it up at bluerosemag.com. Thank you for your interest and for your enthusiasm and, and keeping Twin Peaks alive. Amtrak train. Um, we had left the um, Split Screen Festival, and we're going to go to a panel. JC, who's on the panel? Who's on today's panel? Who's on today's panel? I think. Hold on, I'm going to look right now. In attendance is um, these are the damn fine coffee Twin Peaks fan theories from the fans. So it's Samantha McLaren, uh, Connor Ratliff, Jeremiah Beaver, myself, Andreas Halskoff. Donald McCarthy and a Matthew C. Awesome. So let's get into it and we'll be back. Good morning. I'm uh, Matt Zoller Seitz. I'm the artistic director of Split Screen's Television Festival, which is uh, celebrating its second year. And here we are on day five. Um, I'm really just overjoyed that we got to do this and that the turnout was so great, especially at 11 a.m. on a Sunday. What kind of a maniac comes to something like this on a Sunday? Well, we have our answer. <laughs> we have our answer. And uh, first, I'll just tell you that um, I just kind of tested the waters. I put out a tweet a couple of months ago saying, hey, if I did a fan theory panel, would anybody want to go see it? And the answer was, yeah. And uh, I got a lot of submissions for this thing, and things that were finished, and things that were half-finished, and things that were just ideas, and the thing that struck me about it was, um, immediately, was that um, everybody who had some kind of an angle on Twin Peaks, uh, Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, Twin Peaks The Return, Lynch, and also Lynch-adjacent things like Hannibal, yeah, Hannibal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I'm going to introduce them as a group from the audience, and then I'm going to call them up individually. And they're going to, in the case of someone who's presenting a video, they might set the, kind of set the scene for you a little bit, make a few opening remarks. But we also have two presenters who are doing uh, still image-driven, I don't even want to call it a slide presentation because it's, it's, it's way cooler than that. <laughs> um, all right, so the order is going to be uh, Samantha McLaren, yeah, <laughs> you can. It's okay to applaud for people. Uh, Connor Ratliff. Yeah, Jeremiah Beaver. 
J.C. Hotchkiss, Andreas Halskoff, who is visiting us all the way from where? Denmark. Denmark. All the way from Denmark. And uh, Donald McCarthy. And so without further ado, uh, we're going to kick it off with um, Samantha. And uh, don't forget to silence your cell phones and uh, have yourself a damn fine time. Uh, now, as Matt said, some of us have decided to make our lives very difficult by uh, talking through our entire presentations rather than just showing a video, and I am one of those crazy people. Uh, so I would like to uh, start us off tonight by talking about something that's a little bit different. Um, I'd like to talk about a David Lynch project that never actually came into fruition, about why Lynch may have taken some aspects of that project into Twin Peaks when he made it, and how years later Twin Peaks would inspire another creator to kind of pick up that uh, project that David Lynch uh, originally abandoned and give us a vision of what uh, it might have actually looked like. So, uh, in the 1980s, uh, David Lynch was attached to direct the first ever adaptation of Thomas Harris's novel Red Dragon, a novel which uh, introduced the character of Hannibal Lecter, Hannibal the Cannibal, to the world. And uh, he agreed to make that for the DeLaurentis Company. Now, uh, Red Dragon, as most of you probably know, is the story of a brilliant but troubled FBI special investigator who is brought in to uh, figure out who is killing entire families, uh, butchering them in their beds and violating the mother in front of uh, her dead family. So it's, a, it's grim stuff. And uh, David Lynch became disillusioned with the project. He uh, eventually said that he was getting into a world that was, for me, going to be real, real violent and completely degenerate. So he, uh, he abandoned the project entirely. And uh, that project was later given to director Michael Mann, who produced uh, 1986's Manhunter. Lynch uh, then went on to fulfill his commitment to the Delartis company by uh, making the wonderful Blue Velvet and the uh, interesting Dune. <laughs> and uh, then he moved into television and of course made our beloved Twin Peaks uh, alongside uh, Mark Frost. Now, uh, while Twin Peaks was cementing itself in the pantheons of pop culture, uh, the Hannibal Lecter character was eating his way for a series of uh, different film adaptations of varying quality. Um, and uh, this character, uh, we have to wonder what it was about Red Dragon in particular that put David Lynch off. Why was it so violent? Why did that violence feel so real that he, he just didn't want to touch it anymore? Because he's not afraid of violence, as we all know. Uh, Twin Peaks is, it centers around a horrific murder of a beautiful young woman found dead, wrapped in plastic. It's, it's not a non-violent show, despite all its quirks. And uh, some of the violence is, is really horrific. The death of, uh, of uh, Maddie Ferguson, in particular, traumatized a lot of people. And uh, that includes another TV creator, another auteur creator, Brian Fuller. Now, he uh, told Entertainment Weekly that the death of Maddie Ferguson at the hands of Leland Palmer was probably his first traumatic experience as a television viewer. And speaking of Brian Fuller, uh, he went on to direct his own, uh, not direct, sorry, he went on to create his own adaptation of, uh, of the Red Dragon story, TV's Hannibal, that we hopefully all know and love. Now, uh, Brian Fuller is, uh, is a huge fan of David Lynch, and uh, he has made it very, very clear that uh, that he, he wanted to bring Lynch's 
vision to life almost in his own work. He said that uh, when I sat down with the script, I was very consciously saying, what would David Lynch do with a Hannibal Lecter character? What sort of strange, unexpected places would he take this world? And using David Lynch's body of work, and Twin Peaks in particular, he translated the Hannibal story through that lens to create something that is very Lynchian in many ways. These are both worlds where uh, revelations seem to come through waking dreams and where dream logic spills into uh, waking life, where fantasy and reality often seem to blur and where surreal and demonic imagery is lurking around every corner to shock and terrify us. And despite that, this nightmare fuel sits comfortably alongside a vein of dark humor that runs through both of these uh, productions. And the storytelling is often linear in both Twin Peaks and Hannibal. Uh, in Twin Peaks, Laura can whisper in Cooper's ear at a time which seems to be both 25 years ago and somehow now at the same time. And uh, in Hannibal, Abel Gideon continues to keep himself long after we know he's, he's already dead. And the narratives are also often very circular in both of them, creating unsettling moments of deja vu and a feeling of almost hopelessness that history is doomed to repeat itself and there's not much we can do to change that. That's why I found uh, Laura's scream at the end of uh, Twin Peaks The Return so horrifying because it suggests that even going back in time, maybe we couldn't really change anything. And uh, in Hannibal, uh, Abigail Hobbs survives death at the hands of her father only to walk almost willingly into Hannibal Lecter's arms to uh, receive the same fate for him to finish the job. And that feeling of circularity is strengthened in both by the use of recurring motifs, uh, often drawn from the natural world in particular, uh, water, fire, owls, stags. And both, uh, both of these shows make great use of very unsettling soundscapes, uh, lots of ambient noise as we're hearing right now, and uh, strange, often uncomfortable uh, sound effects. And uh, it plays so constantly for both shows that it almost ceases to play on a conscious level, instead ticking away in our subconscious to unsettle us throughout. And that means that when there is a silence, it is both deliberate and felt. Now, Fuller said that the sound design in particular uh, of uh, Twin Peaks and Lynch's worlds was a huge influence on Hannibal, stating that whenever I do a sound mix, the person that we talk about most is David Lynch. Those tones, those unsettling vibrations, those psychological moods are so vital to the Lynch experience because he is transforming you and transporting you into the psychology of his protagonist, who has a skewed perception of the world. And what that ultimately does is maximize our ability to empathize with a broken character and a broken world. And perhaps the biggest similarity between the two lies in the central uh, characters, Special Agents Will Graham and uh, Special Agent Dale Cooper. Now, uh, these characters are uh, drastically different in temperament. I don't think anyone would call Will Graham particularly chipper, unlike Cooper. Uh, they do both rock a plaid shirt, as we can attest. But uh, they, the similarities run a lot deeper than that. Um, both of them are uh, very morally driven men. Uh, they take great leaps in deduction based on their visions, their perceptions, their dreams. And these leaps can seem so great that people around them often view them in an almost supernatural light. Uh, both worlds are full of supernatural elements. Uh, Twin Peaks in particular seems like there's another world lurking just behind the curtain of her own. And in Hannibal, these moments are fewer and further between, but they are there. Like this moment when uh, Abigail Hobbs, who is already dead, 
and just a vision in Will Graham's head seems to lock eyes with a living priest in the real world. And uh, both these men are dragged into their worlds of waking nightmares by the deaths of young women. Of course, this is a trope that uh, Twin Peaks didn't invent, but certainly helps the men in the detective drama subgenre. And uh, ultimately, both of these men have essentially the same fate. They're both dragged into their world so completely, become so embroiled in their world of nightmares that they struggle to uh, disentangle themselves from it. Leaving Coop's life to be taken over by an evil doppelganger, commits murder wearing his face, whereas Will Graham uh, essentially can't survive separation from Hannibal, becoming so blurred that he becomes him, essentially. And uh, Hannibal's third season, of course, came out before Twin Peaks The Return graced our screens, but in an interesting moment of circularity, both of them are still very thematically similar. Both uh, shows sank even deeper into their surrealist dreamscapes in their third seasons. And against that a backdrop of waking nightmares, they delved even deeper into the harsh realities of trauma. Because uh, we think of Twin Peaks as this fun pop culture show about jelly donuts and cherry pie, but it was always a show about trauma at its heart. It's the trauma of one town feeling the reverberations of shock and grief caused by the death of a promising young woman. And each character handles that differently. And Hannibal was also always a show about trauma. But rather than being trauma felt for a small town, it's trauma felt within the mind of a single damaged man. A man who can't disentangle himself from the things he's seeing and struggles to, uh, to stop anything that's happening. And that gives the show an almost fatalistic feel. A lot of Hannibal feels like we're watching Will slowly walking towards his own execution. And in that way, he's actually kind of similar to the Laura Palmer that we see in Fire Walk With Me. Both of them are burdened with this terrible knowledge and the grief of knowing there's nothing they can do to change their fates. Now, uh, in their third seasons, uh, both shows really doubled down on the trauma. Twin Peaks showed us a world where a lot of our beloved characters are sick and old and dying. Of course, that emotional connection was strengthened by the fact that unfortunately a lot of the cast had died in the intervening years or even shortly before or after the show actually aired. And uh, the death of Laura Palmer is still felt in this world, even 25 years later, as we see when Bobby Briggs starts weeping uncontrollably at the uh, old prom picture of Laura. And in Hannibal, uh, trauma is is very keenly felt in the third season. Uh, all our characters are struggling to deal with the fact that they now know what Hannibal is. Even though they were his friend, they were his lover, they were his colleague. And uh, that trauma is felt most keenly through Will Graham, who's always been the focal point of that trauma. Uh, he is a severely damaged man in the third season, struggling to come to terms with the death of Abigail Hobbs and struggling to come to terms with the fact that despite that, he wishes he'd run away with Hannibal Lecter. Now, both these shows, I'd say their worlds exist just down the road from each other. And that world is uh, just similar to our own, but not quite. These are worlds of violence and heartbreak like her own with some stranger elements. And while uh, David Lynch rejected Red Dragon, because for him, the violence felt too real, too visceral for him to continue with that project, Brian Fuller took what David Lynch had done with Twin Peaks. He translated Hannibal through that lens to create a world in which the violence often feels dreamlike. It feels beautiful. But despite that, the trauma, the trauma is very 
very real. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> Again. <laughs> Sorry. That was Samantha McLaren with. Uh, <laughs> with uh, Brian Fuller's Hannibal as David Lynch's Red Dragon, translating real violence through the surrealistic lens of Twin Peaks, which actually I did that wrong. It should have been Brian Fuller's Hannibal as David Lynch's Red Dragon, translating real violence through the surrealistic lens of Twin Peaks. Like that. That's how I should have done it. So our next presenter is Connor Ratliff, and his presentation is Just a Stranger's Dream, a Unified Field Theory of Twin Peaks. Coming Sunday, April 8th. She's dead, wrapped in plastic. 11.30 a.m., February 24th, entering the town of Twin Peaks. Bobby, did you kill Laura Palmer? Sunday, April 8th, from David Lynch, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks loves questions. Um, the whole thing starts with the big question, one of the iconic questions in TV history, who killed Laura Palmer? Uh, and uh, throughout the series, there, there are uh, questions uh, both asked directly by characters, and almost every scene seems to uh, invoke a question in the viewer, even if it's just at the level of what's going on, what does this mean? Uh, I would say, and I don't think this is a controversial point, uh, Twin Peaks uh, hates answers. They hate giving answers. Uh, and, uh, uh, and it shows. They typically, when they do provide an answer to any of their big questions, they do it uh, with the demeanor of someone who is mad that they have been forced to answer that question. <laughs> and uh, uh, to the point where I think the big takeaway from, uh, from season three is that there are no wrong answers anymore. All of your theories are correct. All of them, not some of them, all of them are correct. And so I'm gonna talk about uh, four of the big questions uh, in Twin Peaks. Uh, uh, of course, we'll get to who killed Laura Palmer in a minute, but I wanna go ahead and dispense with, uh, not only do they begin their, the whole series of the question, the end of season two ends on a question. Uh, and, and the question is, how's Annie? And this is asked, uh, and everybody knows this, but I'll say it anyway, just so that this makes sense if someone hasn't. Uh, Annie Blackburn was a uh, suicidal ex-nun that Agent Cooper dated, and uh, she, she was crowned Miss Twin Peaks, kidnapped by Wyndham Earl, dragged into the Black Lodge, and then she was rescued, but it didn't, we didn't know whether she was alive, whether she was dead, and the series uh, concluded its second season with uh, bad Agent Cooper, possessed by the demon Bob, asking, how's Annie, how's Annie, how's Annie? And... Um, this question was not answered by the prequel Firewalk with me. Uh, more than 25 years later, it was not answered in 18 hours <laughs> of Twin Peaks season three. Uh, it was finally answered in the second book that Mark Frost put out last year, Twin Peaks, The Final Dossier. Uh, and uh, I'll give you the short version of, of the answer to this question uh, by showing you the clip of, of, of Bad Cooper asking it, and then with a little help, uh, with a, from a clip from another iconic television series, Mad Men. How's Annie? How's Annie? How's Annie? How's Annie? How's Annie? Not great, Bob! <laughs> yeah. 
Um, Annie Blackburn uh, was uh, basically catatonic after, uh, after she was rescued from the Black Lodge. Um, uh, things did not go well for her. I think of all of the characters in Twin Peaks, she is maybe the most unfortunate. She dated Cooper for, I think, less than a week, and for her troubles, her life was ruined. And uh, Dale Cooper never even asked how she was. Uh, that's a pretty, pretty grim fate. Um, uh, now, the question who killed Laura Palmer, um, they've actually answered this question now multiple times, uh, never very well. I would say, uh, uh, because they didn't want to answer it. Uh, ABC forced them initially. They were forced to answer it at least twice uh, with two different answers uh, until they finally uh, went a step further with season three and kind of made the question almost unanswerable. So I'm, I'm going to show you uh, uh, four ways that the show sort of answered it, two of them official, two of them sort of, we'll say, semi-official, and then I'm going to show you my own personal theory from October 1990 of who I thought killed Laura Palmer, which I think is pretty good. So... Uh, here we go. Now, the, the first theory was actually in the European pilot, which was a contractually obligated ending to the pilot episode. Here's how they solved it, all right? Um, my, my wife has just remembered. She believes that she saw the killer this morning in Laura's bedroom. It's just a guy. Bob's just a guy. He was in the room that morning. She remembered it later that day. He's just a guy in the basement named Bob. He's not a demon. He's immediately killed by Mike, and that's the end of the mystery. Uh, that, I mean, not, I mean, Cooper got to town that afternoon, and somebody else shot him, and that's it. Uh, now then we have the real, the real official answer, which was that it was Leland Palmer, Laura's dad, possessed by Bob. If, back in the day, if you ever talked to anyone who stopped watching at the end of season one, and then they asked you later who killed Laura Palmer, and you said it was, well, it was her dad, but he was possessed by a demon named Bob, they were never uh, regretful that they stopped watching. Like, the people, no one ever was like, oh, I should have kept up. It, it, it weeded out the, the, the viewers that, that didn't, didn't deserve Twin Peaks. So now we have their third uh, uh, official thing, which is that she was never murdered at all, which kind of makes it so, once you have multiple timelines, like, I, it feels to me like all the answers are true. Like, they shot an ending uh, back in the day that was meant to, uh, as a red herring. They shot Van Horn uh, killing Maddie first. And I think that's as legitimate an ending as anything now that we're dealing with a world where she was killed and then she wasn't. Uh, and here's my theory. I thought it was Andy Brennan. Agent Cooper, can you hear me? It's Andy. It's Andy. They said this for five minutes at the top can of the second Cooper? season premiere. It's Andy. all you heard. Andy. Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper, it's Andy. This is the guy who cried at the crime scene in the first episode. It's comic relief. When they threw the rock, it hit Andy. And they're like, oh, that's funny. But no, he was the killer. Five minutes at the top of season two, I thought they were actually telling the country, Agent Cooper, it's Andy. It's Andy, Agent Cooper. Agent Cooper, it's Andy. If that had been the reveal, everyone was being, was so furious with that scene with the old man delivering the milk. But this is a guy who was clearly traumatized. I didn't cry. I didn't cry. He found the scene with He was capable of things. He shot a man. It's a big heroic moment. I think this would have been such a conventionally satisfying but surprising ending to the mystery. That it was Andy Brennan. And what a tease. What a taunt. 
to actually. Can you hear me? Agent Cooper, it's Andy. Oh, it breaks my heart that it wasn't this. But I feel like I'm right now. Like, I feel like if we live in a world where, uh, you know, the guy in the basement did it, where uh, it was the dad possessed by Bob, it didn't happen. I think all of these theories are now basically true. And I think, you know, if we, if we can't even answer the question whether she was killed, I think this is leading toward the big question that season three was answering, um, which is, you know, I watched that final episode, hour 18, like everybody else, and I had no idea what was going on. And by the time Cooper asks another big question, what year is this? And we are never getting the answer to that question. That is a question that the questions have gotten so much harder because with Who Killed Laura Palmer, you could just pick somebody and be like, maybe it was them. But what year is this? How, how are we supposed to, you can't even take, I think it's 1988. You know, you can't even feel good about that. Uh, but I think what they're saying to us, you know, there, there's a big thing in this about, you know, we are the dreamer who lives inside the dream, but who is the dreamer? I think we are the dreamer. I think that's what they're telling us. I think uh, the whole point of season three, it, it, was, it was telegraphed to us uh, in the first song we hear in the roadhouse at the end of episode two. Uh, I think what they were basically saying is this show was our dream, and now it is just a stranger's dream. And the stranger is us. We are the dreamer. All of our theories are now correct. They never wanted to give us answers in the first place. It, that was a contractual obligation. It was a network pressure. They finally got the freedom to do what they wanted. And that last hour is an hour of television by people who do not want to give us answers. They want us to figure it out for ourselves. So I want to I leave you with... Uh, now, this is the song Shadow by the Chromatics, which sort of told us a lot about how Twin Peaks was going to end and introduced the idea. And I realize I gave this presentation an ambitious title, a unified field theory. I just wanted to make it sound fancy. I'm basically saying we're all correct. There's no wrong answer. Everybody gets a participation trophy. Uh, so let's go ahead and let's see the, 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 final, the final video. We're like the dreamer. Dreams and then lives inside the dream. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. What? Who is the dreamer? But who is the dreamer? A very powerful, uneasy feeling came over me.
lady. I always want to, I, I always like I always like that cartoons like girly man scream sound like in more old Warner Brothers cartoons like when uh, Yosemite Sam is, or the Tasmanian Devil is suddenly scared by something like ah! okay so that was just a stranger's dream a unified field theory <laughs> get the ah. okay thank you Connor for that that was beautiful. Um, so our next presenter is uh, Jeremiah Beaver, uh, and uh, this is titled Talk About Judy, and I assume that's what's about to happen. Uh, mine's all in video form. I just really quick want to say thanks to Matt and Melissa and everybody at Split Screens, and I'm kind of with Connor, like everybody's theory. I'm not tied to one specific theory, but I wanted to talk about the character of Judy and had to give it some kind of, had to frame it a little bit. So I, I drew some of my own observations and it's also kind of loosely based on David Auerbach's unified theory, if you know about his theory. Um, so that's it, just uh, play it nice and loud and thanks again. When the twilight is gone ah, And no songbirds are singing ah, The underlying story of Twin Peaks is the struggle of good versus evil and these two forces are represented by the fireman and Zhao Day in The Return. The fireman is, of course, the gentle giant from the original television series and is a benevolent force of good. Zhao Day, known as Judy, is an idea introduced by Philip Jeffries in the prequel film Fire Walk With Me. I'm not going to talk about Judy. And is inferred as the mother of all evil. This conflict is, in fact, the buried or hidden narrative that drives the return. Judy is represented throughout the story in several forms, seen most clearly as the hovering demon, the experiment in New York, the white horse, and the icon that appears on Mr. C's playing card and Hawk's map. In all probability, she is also the mother creature in pursuit of Cooper during his escape. After her emergence in New York, she heads to Twin Peaks and resides inside Sarah Palmer, Laura's mother, feeding on her constant supply of pain and sorrow. The splitting of the atom in 1945 causes Judy to unleash Bob and other evils upon the world. These evil forces manifest in a location known as the convenience store, materialize years later, and are seen as the woodsman. The fireman is alerted to the rift and witnesses the birth of Bob. He then creates Laura Palmer, a golden orb of concentrated energy meant to one day counter Bob's evil and possibly Judy's as well. Twenty-five years later, veiled clues reveal that the fireman, Agent Cooper, and Laura Palmer have a plan to rid the world of Judy. Based on these clues and context, an argument could be made that their plan goes something like this. Cooper will rescue Laura from the past, and the fireman will create a trap world and place her there. Then Cooper and Diane will lure Judy into the trap, and Laura will destroy her with her concentrated energy. More hints of a plan come from Gordon Cole. Before he disappeared, Major Briggs shared with me and Cooper his discovery of an entity, an extreme negative force called in olden times, Zhao Day. This means that Judy was discussed by Gordon, Cooper, and Briggs off-screen in the original series back in 1989. Major Briggs, Cooper, and I put together a plan that could lead us to Judy. Philip Jeffries, who doesn't really exist anymore, told me a long time ago 
he was on to this entity. Jeffries also knew about Judy in 1989 and could now be involved with the hunt for her as well. Now the last thing Cooper told me, if I disappear, do everything you can to find me. I'm trying to kill two birds with one stone. If this was Cooper's plan 25 years ago, then he and the firemen are now on the same page. I understand. Why didn't you want to talk about Judy? Who is Judy? There are three interconnected subplots of the return, including Cooper's odyssey as Dougie Jones, the events in the town of Twin Peaks, and arguably the most potent, Mr. C versus Judy. Mr. C has been reaping havoc all over the globe for the past 25 years, climbing to the top of the criminal underworld and feeding on the spoils with the parasite Bob. But it's not enough for him, he wants more. And like Cooper and the fireman's secret plan, Mr. C's goal is also to capture or destroy Judy, possibly to harness her power or to become the number one bad guy. I want it. Meanwhile, Judy has taken up residence in the Palmer house, inhabiting Sarah Palmer while she watches scenes of violence on television and consumes endless amounts of cigarettes and alcohol. The big reveal comes when we see the entity inside of Sarah before she tears the throat out of a trucker who antagonizes her. Mr. C spends most of his time looking for coordinates to various back doors and portals to get to Judy. Judy, however, is onto him and they are playing a cat and mouse game. Mr. C is revealed to be the billionaire behind the glass box experiment, a makeshift portal through which Judy appears and escapes. And it's very probable that the radio transmission he receives at the motel is actually Judy and not Philip Jeffries. I missed you in New York. I just called to say goodbye. You are going back in tomorrow, and I will be with Bob again. We could also speculate that one or more of Mr. C's coordinates actually come from Judy, and the portal that annihilates Richard Horn is actually a trap meant for Mr. C. His plan is ultimately thwarted by the firemen and Major Briggs, and the goal of catching Judy is thankfully never fulfilled. This is where you'll find Judy, Cooper, remember? In the finale of The Return, before sending Cooper back in time, Philip Jeffries acknowledges that he is, in fact, assisting in the plan to trap Judy as well. Cooper rescues Laura in the past, and in the present, we see Sarah Palmer having a violent reaction and attempting to smash Laura's picture over and over again. The picture remains undamaged, symbolizing that Laura is safe and that this house of misery is no longer the source of so much pain and sorrow that Judy needs. With Mr. C destroyed and Laura now in the trap, the final stages of Cooper and the fireman's plan are ready for execution. This is also where the story of the return seems to completely fall apart for some viewers. At this point, we are solely relying on the fireman's clues and a small amount of context to discern what is actually happening and how the return concludes. Cooper and Diane cross over into the trap world and drive to a motel. What follows is a real-time, awkward and joyless sex scene that is quite painful to watch. Neither person is enjoying themselves, and one wonders what Diane is going through considering she was raped and probably killed by the evil version of the same man. However, the sex they are performing is a necessary ritual to lure Judy into the trap. There are several clues that support this theory. For one, we remember that Sam and Tracy are having sex when Judy appears in the glass box in New York, leaning toward the idea that the force of Judy is attractive to sex. And it's worth noting that the sex scene between Tracy and Sam happens around the same time from the start of the return, as Cooper and Diane's sex scene happens from the end, mirrored images if you will. Also, we hear the song My Prayer by The Platters, which is a callback to the radio station sequence when Judy's evil and the woodsman permeate the airwaves and materialize in our world. Finally, we can look to the Mark Frost book, The Secret History of Twin Peaks, to add more context to this theory. 
In the book, the character of Jack Parsons is found to have been a student of Aleister Crowley, whose mystical system of Thelema uses sex magic rituals in an attempt to conjure the mother of all abominations, also known as the Whore of Babylon in the Christian Bible. The ritual is complete, Diane disappears, and Cooper leaves the motel the next morning. We instantly see that the world has slightly changed around him, including the motel and Cooper's car. Cooper arrives in Odessa, Texas at a coffee shop named Judy's. The changing world and the coffee shop are indicators that Judy is here. Arriving at the address given to him, Cooper notices a familiar electrical pylon with the number 6 on it. This pylon has appeared throughout the Twin Peaks series and is also seen by Andy when he encounters the fireman, reminding us that this world has been created for a purpose. Cooper knocks at the door and someone looking like Laura Palmer emerges. What's your name? She is insistent that her name is Carrie Page, and while she seems a little rattled when he first mentions Laura Palmer and that her mother's name is Sarah, he convinces her to go to her mother's home in Twin Peaks, Washington. Before they leave, Cooper enters her home and notices a dead man resembling Bob, and he also sees a dark saucer and a small white horse statue on a shelf. The horse is the white of the eyes. They make it to Twin Peaks and Carrie doesn't recognize anything even when they arrive at her childhood home. Cooper takes her hand as they walk up the steps and knock on the door. A woman answers and he asks for Sarah Palmer. No, there's no one here by that name. She claims to own the house and when Cooper asks who she bought it from, she asks someone off camera and replies, Chelfont, Mrs. Chelfont. What is your name? Alice, Alice Tremond. We now have the final clues that point to Judy being inside the house and that this is all a facade. The first clue is Alice Tremont's subtle lean off screen to ask an unseen person the answers to Cooper's questions. It seems innocent enough, but a cynical take is that there is literally someone or something telling her what to say. It can also be a callback to when Hawk visits Sarah Palmer and we hear noises off screen, letting us know that perhaps something else is in there with her. The final clues are in the names Tremond and Chalfont. Mrs. Tremond was the old woman who lived with her grandson and was visited by Donna Hayward while looking for clues into Laura's death in the original series. Donna takes Agent Cooper to her apartment to ask her some questions, and the woman who answers the door is not the same Mrs. Tremond. In the prequel film, Laura is given a picture by the old woman and the grandson, who are referred to in the prequel as the Chalfonts. Can you tell me whose trailer it was? An old woman and her grandson, Chalfont. Laura also sees them in a vision of the convenience store, pointing to the idea that they are supernatural and probably evil, and that Tremond and Chalfont are aliases used to disguise themselves in the real world. One could also make the assumption that maybe this old woman was the Judy of the original story, the grandmother or mother of these evil beings. Cooper fails to recall this minor detail, maybe because he is slowly forgetting himself like Carrie Page in this world. Keeping his composure but devastated by his failure, he apologizes and slowly walks with Carrie back down the steps and into the street. Carrie looks back at the house, staring intently. Cooper staggers while in deep thought, refusing to give up and is desperately trying to understand what went wrong and why the plan has failed. He wonders aloud, What year is this? Which triggers something in Carrie Page. She looks back at the Palmer house with a new wide-eyed terror. In the faint background, Carrie Page hears the distorted voice of her mother, Sarah Palmer, calling her name. It all comes back to her. She is Laura Palmer and this is Judy's house now. From the deepest depths of her soul, Laura releases her famous blood-curdling scream. 
Cooper looks back in shock as a flash of electricity burns out the lights in the Palmer house and the scream echoes into infinity. Laura's concentrated energy has been released, destroying Judy and this reality with it. sense. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, that was uh, Talk About Judy by Jeremiah Beaver. And our next presenter is J.C. Hotchkiss. And this is titled Ding Dong, Cooper's Dead. Well, I'm going to start by going because nobody's done this yet. Hello. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Um, we can all go home now, because that just solved everything right there. Um, yeah, now I have to follow that. So hi, I'm JC Hotchkiss. I'm an associate editor and writer for 25 Years Later site, Damn Fine TV and Film. Um, so my theory, I, um, like all of you, I've been a Twin Peaks lover since I was the age of 12. Um, Kyle coming on screen as Agent Cooper was like a defining moment in my life, because not only did, well, We've all seen Kyle. But, um, but also, I wanted to be Cooper, because he was just such a cool character. I think he's one of the best written TV characters, period. And Mark Frost agrees with me, because he retweeted that tweet. Um, so, so I started doing my research, and I love theories, and I love that David Lynch loves mystery, and I love that David Lynch and, and Mark Frost love theories, and all of it. And I'm with Connor on this. I think everybody's theory is, is viable. I don't think that one theory is better than the other. Some may be crackpot and crazy, and, but so are we as fans. We're all gifted and strange and wonderful and all those things. So I'm going to lead into, this is from, I wrote a couple pieces called Reincarnation and the Return. And this was the ending one, which was my heartbreaking one, but it's the one that makes most sense to me, so hopefully it makes sense to you. Enjoy. Reincarnation and the Return. Ding dong, Cooper's dead. For those of you who don't know me, my love for the character of Special Agent Dale Cooper runs very deep. Extremely deep. Is Kyle watching this? God, I hope not, because that would just be embarrassing. Which makes my theory so heart-wrenching. I'm going to make a very bold statement, one in which may get me into a lot of trouble with some of you, applauded by others, and even more asking, what are you talking about, JC? After rewatching seasons one, seasons two, Firewalk with Me, and a first viewing with rewatching parts of season three, I have come to the deduction that Special Agent Dale Cooper is dead. Now, before you bite my head off, let me make my case. I have read, researched, and reread different theories on reincarnation and Tibetan Buddhist mysticism. The Tibetan Book of the Dead, also known as The Great Liberation Upon Hearing in the Intermediate State, is a guide for the dead during the state that intervenes death and the next rebirth. It's a little like Beetlejuice in the handbook for the recently deceased. What made me gasp upon reading passages from a condensed version of the book was the following explanation. The Bardo Todal teaches that once awareness is freed from the body, it creates its own reality as one would experience in a dream. This dream occurs in various phases, Bardo's, in ways both wonderful and terrifying overwhelmingly peaceful and wrathful visions and deities appear. 
Since the deceased's awareness is in confusion of no longer being connected to a physical body, it needs help and guidance in order that enlightenment and liberation occurs. This brings us back to Gordon's Monica Bellucci dream. We are like the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. But who is the dreamer? Why I do still believe we are all the dreamers. In this realm of discussion, there is yet another answer. The dreamer is Dale Cooper. And the reason he's our dreamer is because he is going through the states of Bardo just as the Tibetan Book of the Dead instructs. The first stage of Bardo comes at the very moment of death. Where do I think Cooper died? Cooper dies at the end of season one when he is shot by Josie. He is visited by two beings, the giant and the waiter, which some say are one and the same, but I think the giant may communicate through the waiter, or the waiter is just another Lodgian being. They both are trying to get Cooper to see things in a certain way, spiritually, but one more literally than the other. The giant tells Cooper many things, while the waiter listens to Cooper's call for help, but ignores his request. Both are trying to teach him something about descending into the first stage. But Cooper, being Cooper, does not see what he needs to and is put into the second stage, secondary clear light. This level constantly repeats the instructions needed to be able to go on to the next level. The giant returning to Cooper and telling him, it's happening again, is one example. But JC, this would mean that everything in season two is part of Cooper's reincarnation and is not really happening. Well, yes and no. This is where you have to bear with me and keep an open mind. When Major Briggs visits Cooper, he shows Cooper the printout that says, the owls are not what they seem, followed by three Coopers. In the return, only two Coopers are mentioned. The reason for the three is because there are three Coopers at this point. Good Cooper, the dead one, who is in the Red Room, pre-Mr. C. Cooper, who is also in the Red Room, and the Bodhisattva emanation of Cooper, still in the realm of Twin Peaks. His Holiness the 14th Dalai Lama of Tibet's webpage states, Ordinary sentient beings generally cannot manifest an emanation before death, mede toku. But superior bodhisattvas, who can manifest themselves in hundreds or thousands of bodies simultaneously, can manifest an emanation before death. Within the Tibetan system of recognizing tolkus, there are emanations who belong to the same mind stream as the predecessor, emanations who are connected to others through the power of karma and prayers, and emanations who come as a result of blessings and appointment. Cooper, with the guidance of the giant, emanated a version of himself so he could continue trying to solve Laura's murder and truly embrace what being a bodhisattva meant. So JC, wouldn't that be considered a tulpa? Yes, you're getting it now. It's almost exactly like we've been finding out about tulpas. The second bardo is the bardo of becoming. Spiritualtravel.org writes, a stage in which the desires of the individual are said to carry the largely helpless soul through a great variety of intense emotional states. Good thoughts bring great bliss and pleasure, and hateful or negative thoughts bring great pain and desolation. To me, this is the other Coopers, Mr. C and Dougie. As Dougie, Cooper's soul is broken, and feelings of bliss and pleasure control him like that of a child. Mr. C, on the other hand, is mean and maniacal. Both represent two opposite thoughts of an afterlife, heaven and hell. In the Buddhist religion, heaven is not a permanent state and neither is hell. Thus, Cooper must make his subconscious recognize this change of states. When he's Dougie, Cooper feels things Mr. C has done as evidenced by such moments as the face massage Mr. C gave Jack that Cooper mirrors after getting an attaboy by Bushnell. He may not recognize he is in fact dead, even though he is feeling and remembering his shadow self. 
Another interesting part of the second bardo is that it is said to last for two weeks. If you consider the timeline of the return, it's about ten days, give or take. In the second bardo, there is also a part that explains Laura and her light. Even the most wretched souls will eventually work their way out of the deepest pit of hell, just as even the highest and purest souls will eventually lose their footing in heaven and descend again into a cycle of death and rebirth. Liberation is the only way out. I'm not saying that Laura is a truly wretched soul, but she has had some truly wretched things happen to her. Laura is as important to this whole equation as is Cooper. Laura shows Cooper the bright white light which inhabits her. Cooper does not know what this means in the beginning of the return. Due to his lack of reaction, Laura is pulled back out into rebirth and into, as we soon find out, Carrie Page. This can only occur because Laura was liberated at the end of Firewalk With Me, and liberation is the only way out. Cooper has not achieved this because his ultimate need to protect and serve keeps him from liberation. Additionally, he cannot be liberated because he has yet to face the third bardo. In the third bardo, the soul encounters the Lord of Death, which can be seen as Zhao Dei, or Judy. The way in which the third bardo is explained makes my heart hurt for various reasons. The worst being that what unfolds in parts 17 and 18 sounds frighteningly similar. The soul encounters the Lord of Death, a fearsome demonic deity who appears in smoke and fire, and subjects the soul to a judgment. If the dead person protests, he has done no evil. The Lord of Death holds up before him the mirror of karma, wherein every good and evil act is vividly reflected. Now demons approach and begin to inflict torments and punishments upon the soul for his evil deeds. The instructions the bardo told all are for him to attempt to recognize the voidness of all these beings, including the Lord of Death himself. The dead person is told that this entire scene unfolding around him is a projection from his own mind. Even here, he can attain liberation by recognizing this. Sounds quite similar, doesn't it? What year is this? The screen suddenly goes black. The void has been recognized. All these beings and Judy herself have been a projection of Cooper. Is this Cooper achieving his liberation by recognizing the void? Does Carrie Laura's scream help Cooper to liberate as well? Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. Now comes the sad part. Cooper has not acknowledged his death, and this is why he does not realize the projection to be true. He still thinks he is a living Dale Cooper, and why shouldn't he? He is the Cooper that saved Laura. He is the one that brought her back home so she will once again be with her mother. He risked everything to make sure this would happen. He fell further and further into different locas, or locations of hell, to escape the truth. He believes it is Laura's truth he must save, and his actions as Bodhisattva are helping Laura ascend to her greatness. This is why we will always end up seeing Cooper still in the lodge, with Laura whispering in his ear. He will always end up in a new hell because he cannot move forward with his own liberation. He will always be searching, finding, discovering, never giving up, and then coming full circle back to the Red Room. Laura will always be waiting to whisper that he is dead. His soul is there with her, and if he ever wants to move on, he needs to awaken. Cooper can control his own destiny within the constructs of the Bardo Todal, the instructions given to him in this afterlife. He just needs to follow them. Once he follows down this path of enlightenment, Cooper will have truly awakened. He will have fulfilled his duty, become a superior bodhisattva, and once again will have virtue and goodness be perfected in every way. All right. Thank you. That was fantastic. You know, what's really cool is every one of these that you watch, you go, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and then the next one comes up, you're like, 
No, 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 no. That's it. That's it. Okay, so this next one is uh, by Andreas Halskoff, uh, titled Twin Peaks of the Return, parentheses, Fan Theory. That's a very uh, uh, unassuming, humble title that does not really describe the scope and depth of what you are about to witness. Holy cow. Uh, so, Andreas, do you want to come up and uh, put a frame around this for us? Um, this is uh, it's all in video form. Um, uh, it's not really a grand theory, and let alone an exhaustive, uh, exhaustive one. Um, it's about repurposing and remixing in Twin Peaks The Return, and I argue that it uh, employs a lot of shots and iconic images and motifs from film history and different parts of Lynch's production. Um, I hope you'll find it enjoyable. Uh, it's done together with a colleague of mine called Jan. He's edited it, and uh, it's edited in a way that's sort of supposedly playful. It's meant to mirror that kind of collage or montage-like style in The Return. I hope you'll enjoy it. On the stage at the Roadhouse, we see a beautiful woman singing a song about returning, about coming back to the place where it all began. And the woman seems recognizable, doesn't she? Just as the pattern on her dress and the strangely artificial sound of her voice. The singer on the stage is Rebecca Del Rio, and this scene from Twin Peaks The Return is eerily similar to the iconic Club Silencio scene from Mulholland Drive in which Del Rio seemingly sings a Spanish version of Roy Orbison's Crying. The Return, I will argue, can be seen as a meditation on death or on life and film history as a perpetual cycle, and it remixes and samples shots from the original show repeats motifs from different Lynch productions, and recalls and repurposes scenes from different parts of film history. One way in which we see this tendency towards recycling and repurposing is in the actual remixing of old shots and sounds, and in the almost ritualistic repetition of iconic or maligned scenes from the original series. This type of remixing serves many different purposes, but it often points to the general theme of life as a cycle, where characters are imprisoned in their own minds, forced to repeat specific actions or patterns. While holding back many of the famous leitmotifs by Bartolomenti, 
David Lynch, for example, chooses to repeat a scene with James Hurley, performing Just You on the stage at the Roadhouse, one of the most divisive scenes of the original show. Audrey's Dance. The same thing could be said of the strange replaying of Audrey's Dance in Part 16 which this time is introduced as Audrey Stans, as if that were the title of the song in the diegetic world and not just the official title on the soundtrack. God, I love this music. Isn't it too dreamy? In the original scene from episode two, Audrey refers to the music as dreamy. Now as the song is repeated, her sensual dance gets a new and slightly more tragic vibe. And as we suddenly cut to a shot of Audrey in front of a mirror in a white room, cued by a sudden change in the sound, we cannot help thinking that this might indeed have been a dreamy scene, a part of Audrey's fantasy space, as it were. It's the strangest thing. She never made it home. The scenes with Audrey and James are repeated almost one to one, but other shots and sounds are sampled in a different way and for a different purpose. One scene from the beginning of the new series, for example, repurposes an old shot with Frank Silver from episode 16 of the original series, whereby Silver becomes a part of the new series, though he had died in the mid 1990s. Superimposing that shot of Silver upon a shot of McLaughlin's face might have been a pragmatic choice, but it also serves a nostalgic function, while eulogizing the actor and pointing to the themes of death and letting go. Laura! Oh, for goodness sakes. Laura, now means now. Laura? Laura? The cyclical nature of Twin Peaks has often been debated, and the sampling of Sarah Palmer's voice at the end of the new series seems to indicate a Mebius strip-like structure akin to Lost Highway. Names, places, and visuals are different, yet the sounds and the actors take us back to the very beginning of the pilot episode. What year is this? Agent Kuba might have been able to rewrite the story of Twin Peaks and Laura Palmer, but the ending of season three alludes to the myth of Orpheus, implying that Cooper, in trying to change history, might have committed an act of hubris. The more things change, the more they stay the same.
Though Twin Peaks has always been a shared vision, Lynch and Frost working in close collaboration, the new season does seem to echo many of the most iconic scenes and motifs in Lynch's filmography. One example is this scene from Part 11, where two innocent boys play baseball only to find a mutilated woman by the side of the road, clearly recalling the gruesome opening of Blue Velvet, where Jeffrey finds a severed ear in the grass. Another typical Lynch motif is vomit, and since his first short film Six Figures Getting Sick and his first ever feature film Eraserhead, Lynch is often focused on sickness. Film scholar Martha Nochimson has even described this as his urtext, arguing that Lynch's films often thematize the sickness within human beings and seemingly healthy societies. This motif is also evident in The Return, and here it seems the sickness is spreading and becoming gradually more pervasive. Another Lynchian motif which is repeated in The Return is that of humans as animals. This is often seen and heard in Lynch's films through animalistic sound designs and shots of characters barking and acting like wild animals. How about this jail scene from The Return? Doesn't it look and sound almost exactly like this scene from the opening of the original show? Or this scene from the grandmother, perhaps, where the father barks at his son while treating him like an animal. The Return recycles and remixes old material from the original series and the prequel Fire Walk With Me, and it repeats motifs and scenes from other parts of Lynch's oeuvre. It also recalls and repurposes different scenes from other parts of film history though, at times looking like an intertextual collage or a cultural compost heap. Inspired by Dadaist, experimental filmmakers and modern writers like William Burroughs, David Lynch cuts up different scenes from film history and puts them into a new context. For the iconic montage in part 8, for example, he makes a callback to Stan Brakhage and the Stargate sequence from Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey, while using a musical piece by one of Kubrick's preferred composers, Christoph Penderecki.
In fact, the sequence from The Return even references Man Ray's The Return to Reason from 1923. Though pointing to the importance of senses and intuition rather than sense and reason. Other parts of Twin Peaks then refer to Lynch's fascination with film noir, as in this shot, which instantly echoes a shot from Lost Highway, that in turn recalls an iconic shot from Robert Aldrich's Kiss Me Deadly. The new Twin Peaks references abstract films, old classics and famous auteurs, but it also mirrors well-known scenes from popular Hollywood productions. One example is the scene where Johnny Horn is forced to witness the brutal attack on his mother Sylvia by her own grandson. This disturbing scene combines visual elements from Dumbland with a musical track from One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, thus reminding the viewer of the thin line between sanity and insanity, and creating a gruesome audiovisual counterpoint. No! Hello, Johnny. I stole my unit. You nuts want to play cards or you want to fucking jerk? Play the game. Can't even The song Charmaine was already composed in the 1920s, of course, but the use of it in this particular scene from Twin Peaks certainly looks like a reference to Foreman's film, and Mark Frost in fact mentions Cuckoo's Nest in his final dossier. References like that abound in Twin Peaks The Return, and sometimes they seem almost absurd and comical, or even over the top. Commence! Over! Margaret, what can I do for you? Hawk. I'm dying. This kind of referencing and remixing might seem like a sign of the times. I'm sorry, Margaret. A time where we return to well-known formulas and where we nostalgically revisit old stories and characters. In the return, however, repetition and remixing are used to illustrate that life itself is a cycle. That all is repetition or a reimagining of something else. Everything is a cyclical process of repetition and transformation. It's time. There's some fear. Some fear in letting go. This point is illustrated by the log lady, who talks to the camera about dying and the fear of letting go, as if commenting directly on the action from an extra diegetic vantage point, like she did in the log lady introductions that were made in the mid-1990s 
when Twin Peaks was syndicated on Bravo. Herself dying, Catherine Coulson insisted on returning to Twin Peaks, and the scene became a touching eulogy, reminding the fans of their fear of letting go, and echoing the touching ending of The Elephant Man. The wind is moaning. I'm dying. Another thing that's neat about this is we're getting to see, we're getting to appreciate all the different aspects of David Lynch. The, there's David Lynch, the horror filmmaker, David Lynch, the surrealist and kind of experimental filmmaker, multimedia person. Uh, and uh, here, I think the compassion of David Lynch, that's not a word that's often associated with him, but I think he does have deep reserves of compassion, particularly for people who are ill or old or dying. And that, uh, that's very moving to see that to see that illustrated on a big screen by uh, all you folks. It's great. So our next presenter is Donald McCarthy, and this is titled The Tragedy and Triumph of Diane Evans. Hello, so thank you for having me. Um, this one is going to be about Diane, but for our purposes, we're not gonna actually differentiate too much from Diane and her tulpa, just because the tulpa seems to have gone through, even if it's just through memory, the same uh, trauma that Diane has. I can't see any of you. This is extremely relaxing. Yeah. Uh, so here we have Diane sitting in the tulpa as the tulpa, but for our purposes, we'll view her as the same. So Diane in the original series was kind of a shticky thing. She was sort of a rock, sort of provides humor. Um, when Cooper was talking to Diane in the recording, you felt safe. You felt kind of like, oh, it's this quaint um, relationship that they have. Um, you don't get too much of it. You're not even sure. I remember, I remember before the new show, there were even theories that there was no Diane, that this was almost a therapeutic process for him. In the new show, we see that they did, in fact, have a relationship. And if you read um, the Dale Cooper books written by, uh, I believe it was Mark Frost's brother, My, uh, My Life in Tapes, which, since you're here to see a Twin Peaks theory, I imagine we have all read. Um, and in the new one, we start to see perhaps a relationship that we wouldn't have envisioned, the idea that there is a sexual relationship, a romantic relationship. Um, there's allusions to in the book of them having one night together, which kind of goes against uh, the Cooper we saw in the original series, especially when he's recording uh, messages to her where it seems he's very relaxed. It's, um, it, there's not much there. It's just, it's a secretary position, but at the same time, a slight friendly position. But there's no hint of a romance there. So when she turns up in the return, it's quite, quite startling right away. Initially, she's angry right off the bat. 
not clear to us why she's angry. When you see the end of the show, we know probably two reasons that she's angry. One is what happened to her for Cooper. But two, when Gordon and Albert come, they're behind the times. Diane, unlike everybody else, is aware of Bad Cooper's existence. He's basically her shadow, following her everywhere she goes. So unlike all the other characters, Diane knows what we know. She's aware that we're in a new version of Twin Peaks. We are no longer in the um, damn fine coffee and nice piece of cherry pie that we were 25 years before. She's angry that Gordon and Albert haven't caught up to that fact. And to an extent to the audience who at this time was still expecting some of the original of Twin Peaks was like, where's Cooper? Where's the pie? Where's the kind of goofier, stickier dialogue that we expected? No, Diane is aware that things have changed in a way the other characters are not. They still expect Twin Peaks to be playing by its old rules. So <laughs> all of a sudden, her anger makes a lot more sense. Nobody else is on the same page as her. If you, any of you have been in any experience where you feel you're the smartest person in the room, and I think we all feel that way at some point, uh, you know the fuck you feeling that Diane has. Why can't anybody else be on my page? Why don't they see what I see? This is no longer Twin Peaks, the original series. This is something new. And while that's interesting in a metatextual way, it's extremely tragic in the sense of the only reason she realizes this is because of the horror that was inflicted upon her by bad Cooper. What is interesting is that even Cooper, our hero, the guy who, as um, in one of the other presentations, the kind of cool, sexy man from the original show, is completely clueless. Even in the Red Room, he has to be told his doppelganger is still out there. Diane knows this. Albert and uh, Gordon, I almost, I keep wanting to call him Lynch, but Gordon Cole, um, they are somewhat aware something's wrong, but even then, when they first go to see Cooper, there's this feeling of disconnection, but it might still be him. And, Cooper, and Gordon tells Albert, I have a bad feeling about Cooper, but he's still not caught up, not the way Diane is. And you can see that in how shaky she is, and her hands are literally shaking when she sees him in the prison. And the idea of her shaking is going to come up again and again, especially when she sends text messages. When she's messaging Bad Cooper, often her hand shakes, the screen of the camera, excuse me, the screen of the phone shakes, and you can see something's not lining up. Unlike the rest of the show, she's almost at a disconnect. When she sends a text message to Cooper, often three, four, even five episodes will go by until we see Bad Cooper receive that text message, and vice versa. I remember when it was airing, a lot of people were saying, are the episodes intentionally out of order? But that doesn't go along with anything else that occurred. It almost feels as if Diane is in her own television show, one that the, sh the real show will soon catch up to. When Diane finally reveals her story to Gordon and um, Albert, there's a sense that the television show can't handle it. Once again, she starts to shake. She starts to disintegrate. It's too horrifying. As terrifying as the old show was, there was the sense that we had had closure. We found out who killed Laura. As a matter of fact, one of the reasons I think Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me was so 
uh, questionably received when it came out is that it denied that. It said, I'm sorry, it's not over. You still have more horrors to see. So when Diane brings that into Twin Peaks, The Return, it's almost as if the other characters can't handle that, and they shoot her, exiting her from the narrative. You're no longer allowed to be part of this story. You're darkening it too much. You're bringing up too much. When she finally does return, it's once everything has gotten normal again, when the narrative can once again handle the character of Diane. She's friendly. She's comforting to Cooper. They go off together. This does not last. She has the is it future or is it past moment when she's sleeping with Cooper, totally aware of the horrors that have happened to her. It comes back to us. It's disturbing to see, not just because of her face, and Laura Dern is so amazing in this scene, but so is Kyle MacLachlan, because that's not our Cooper. Our Cooper would say, Diane, what is wrong? Why are you acting like this? No, he doesn't even seem to recognize the trauma that she's going through, which is extremely disturbing. That's not Cooper. What's wrong? Well, you'd think Diane would also react, but she doesn't. She's aware that she's in a darker universe. She's aware that this television show is not the original Twin Peaks television show. As you might note, Twin Peaks The Return, often very funny. Dougie Jones, you know, walking around. Gordon Cole, he's dead. Hilarious lines. There's nothing funny in the uh, last episode. In the last episode, Twin Peaks The Return has metamorphosized into Diane's Twin Peaks, the one where it's dealing solely with trauma. She's also the only one in the finale who begins to notice that something's wrong. She sees her doppelganger, a sign that she needs to get out. Unlike Cooper, who's plowing straight ahead. And this aspect of Diane has been throughout the entire show. Early on, when she saw um, Hastings' head explode in the back of the car, what does she do? Absolutely nothing. She's aware of what's going to happen, and she doesn't intervene. Is it because she's evil? No, it's because she knows it's inevitable. In this version of Twin Peaks, we're seeing something much darker. None of the other characters know how to handle it. Gordon and Albert are confused. The detective screams. Diane is seeing the signs. Her trauma, horrifying as it was, has equipped her for Twin Peaks The Return. Which leads to this. Diane literally writes herself out of the script of the show. She leaves a message for Cooper saying, I'm not returning. I understand where this is going. I need to leave. Cooper does not. Cooper is still in 1990, 1991. His time in the Black Lodge has not allowed him to come to terms with the way the story has evolved and television has evolved. Um, it's funny, as we think back to our original Twin Peaks, which I watched before the new show came on, as which I'm sure every single one of us in this room did, um, I thought to myself, I can't wait to see when it comes back. But if it comes back the same way and television had changed so much, how would that be received? And they didn't. They came back with a show that was almost entirely different, except Dale Cooper is unaware of this. He doesn't get the message. The giant told him, two birds, one stone, Richard and Linda. He doesn't make the connection there. He can't see what Diane has seen. Diane's trauma has allowed her to escape. She's seeing the end result. You cannot escape the trauma. It also questions, it also comments back on the original run. After Cooper found out that Leland killed it, the show, as I think we would probably all agree, entered a slight 
downturn for a little while. We had James's Odyssey on the motorcycle. You know, how many of us would have rather seen three hours of uh, sweeping in the roadhouse than some of those middle episodes, right? The show completely moved on. Here the show is coming back and saying, you can't move on from that. You can't just move forward from the trauma of that town. What Leland did to her daughter and what the town allowed him to do to his daughter. Cooper has not caught up, Diane has. She's saying, I'm leaving. I'm not putting myself through the rest of this. And because Cooper can't realize it, it's happening again. Thank you. But thank you so much for coming out to this. Uh, really, really enjoyed it. So that was Split Screens, Twin Peaks. Damn fine theories. Damn fine theories. But JC, you got to come here early. Uh, tell us your whole experience. I did. Um, I arrived yesterday, and Split Screens had panels throughout since Thursday. They had it. They started May 31st, and so Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I came in uh, Saturday morning, um, so I got to sit on the cinematic panel, which they discussed whether TV should be considered cinematic, like as in a film, like comparing film versus television. Oh, wow. Um, that was an interesting, interesting. We had um, Emily Nussbaum, who's a TV critic for The New Yorker. And then there was Frank, who you met today. Yeah, yeah. He was on it. He writes for Vulture. Matt Zoller-Zeitz was um, the MC. Dennis Lim, I believe, who wrote The Man from Another Place. Okay. He's a book on Lynch. Yep. And then Candace, I want to say it's Candace Fredericks, for she's um, The Daily Beast. So they had like they had discussions back and forth about different television that they like and what they consider to be like because the whole argument from the return was is this a television show or is it a film on television or it could it be considered a film since so many critics came out and said oh it was on their top ten film list even though it was a te television series yeah it was on Ben's yeah. was his favorite film of last year well I mean in in the and and I think. What, what wasn't brought up, which I wish was brought up, and we thought about this afterwards because we had Lindsay and Cameron and myself from 25 years later, and we went and had coffee afterwards and discussed, because they wrote pieces that came out right away. So mm -hmm. go on 25 years later, guys, and see the pieces that are uh, written about split screens. But we talked about how we think Lynch had said how he filmed it, but he never said it was a film. He said he filmed it like a film mm -hmm. continuously. Mm -hmm. But... He didn't say that it was. He knew it was episodic because he had to put the roadhouse cl closings at the end he put on purpose. Yeah. So it would follow that, you know. So I, I'm not so sure that he even, I mean, he, he treated it like a film. And I think any director should treat a television show that's that's episodic like a film anyways because they're all mini films on to yeah. me yeah, yeah. but see but that's the argument like what what differentiates the difference so that was a really interesting panel the second one we thought was four women directors um, that directed everything from um, the crashing on HBO and halt and catch fire and somebody did um, an episode of pushing daisies so it's all different um, Queen Sugar so that was really interesting and they went into detail about showing versus telling like, so, you know, like scenes like, you know, in the return where sound was so important and, you know, and the long driving with Cooper and Carrie and, you know, that there was no sound. There's no music. There's no nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was it was really and that was incredible. And then, then today I got to be on, a you know, the panel. So that was interesting, too. <laughs> so, yes, uh, your panel, everybody did such a great job. 
they were like little mini movies up there. Yeah, they were. That was that was incredible. I when they when they when I it submitted and they said, "Can you do your theory visually?" And and I discussed it with Ben because Ben, yay, Ben, helping me out for you know the the editing of the of the video. He he's he's the video guy. Well, I'm, I'm of, the talking. It was a lot of fun. We did it in like two weeks though, right? Yeah, two I mean, weeks. We basically, I mean, you had already done your essay. Or, yeah, I had yeah. the piece was the already theory. written. The theory was yeah. written, and that's what Matt asked. He goes, "Was it something that's already done?" And I said, "It's done. All I have to do is manipulate it to be able to speak it on stage." Because at the time, I thought it all had to be live. You know, it had to be like I was going to be up on stage and showing the video, and then it was that's, all going to be live. That's what I thought, and I have to say, you read "Ding Dong Cooper's Dead" on our show before, right? And seeing it now, you obviously. It was great that you changed it for an audience. Yes. The way you worded things and you added things was was really cool. Like yeah. I was like, oh my god, this is like this is a little bit different. Yep. Um, but I thought that was a nice touch. I even made a joke. That was yes. that joke was good. That joke was good. Now too bad it lo- it, lo- it lost something in the translation. It would have been cool if Kyle was in the audience. <laughs> yes, but, you I know. know that was cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, a lot of people didn't read theirs out loud they they had their videos right they did which I, I i liked the difference between both though like samantha mm. d- took the time to go up there which i was was very brave god bless her see my 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 point was not that i was nervous because i was amongst my tribe i mean these are all twin peaks fans so i knew yeah. that i i was going to be comfortable being up there and and supported like a lot of people that speak in front of an audience don't know if they're going to be so i knew yeah. I, we were going to be so it was nice but what I really thought was interesting was um, she doing it live and then me thinking, okay, am I going to do it live at first? And then Melissa saying, no, you could tape it and do it. I'm like, okay, good. <laughs> I, um, I have a tendency to speak really fast. Now, you guys know that because I've been on the show and, and people have heard me enough where they know the tone. When you're in an audience like that, you don't want to lose some of the message that you're sending. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. people that don't know how I speak and can't f- follow that quickly, it would be kind of it would be too much information all at once. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Whereas being able to record it with Ben and then showing it up on screen. And I actually liked it because I loved the way that you, that Ben edited it to like when Gordon says, but who is the dreamer? And it's my voice, but David yes. Lynch's mouth. You know what I, I mean? Like that. that was brilliant. It was I, a great yeah, touch. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Ben did a great job. And yeah, I mean, it was a lot of fun. We only had like two weeks to, to like put together a video, which was exciting trying to get the clips together and figure out what goes with it. And then you recorded in the studio. That was really awesome too, to be able to do that. So it was, I, I was very happy with what we were able to complete in just a few weeks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And like you said, you don't want to speak too quickly because um, I know the first person, she was almost like, I'm done, but I have like, I don't know, she made a comment like, but uh, it's not over. Like she went a little quicker than her presentation. The yeah. music was. Yeah. If she didn't bring it up, nobody would have noticed. But when you're nervous, yeah, you're gonna do that. You're yeah. gonna do that. Her her presentation made me want to watch Hannibal. I agree with I've that. I've never like, watched Hannibal. I've nope. never had an interest. But her presentation, what she was saying about the director, or the creator, how he was a big Lynch fan, and how I didn't even know Brian Lynch. Fuller, I've, I've read in interviews that he was a huge Lynch fan, so that didn't surprise me at I all. I didn't know Lynch was attached to doing this. Movie. I didn't know that. No, you know what? I take that back. I remember hearing something like that, but yeah. I remember when somebody else brought up Hannibal or, or Red Dragon and stuff, and I remember reading like in a in a faint in an article 
But yeah, no, I thought it was yeah, it was fascinating. Mm. I have many friends who loved Hannibal. Well, the, a yeah. lot of people loved Mad, Mads Mikkelsen. I think that's how his he's, name is. Yeah, he's a great actor. I mean, yes. look, he was. Gen- uh, Galen Urso from yes. from Rogue One. You Rogue know. One. He was also in Doctor Strange. Yeah, that's right. I forgot he was in Doctor Strange, but yeah, he yeah. Play, he's a very good villainous character actor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He plays a good guy too, but like not very often. So I'll give it a chance now. Yeah, I mean, me too. Yeah, I think yeah. So yeah. So Connor was hysterical. Like, and I that's what I was waiting for. I was waiting for somebody to have a theory that was like funny. Yes. But it like made you still think about things. I'm like, oh my god, yeah, that's right. You know, like questions aren't answered, and they don't, and they really. I mean. Let's put it this way. Mark and David originally were put together to do a project about Marilyn Monroe. Mm-hmm. That has always been speculated about. Who killed Marilyn? There's books. There's movies. There's things. And it was never, ever, like, it, it was suicide. Okay, well, but the people still think it, it's out there yeah. in the ether. It's still mysterious. And that's exactly it, almost the similar style they wanted to do to Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. And they're right. They had ABC, you know, didn't allow them to do that. And... Yeah, I thought his was great. And he's a member. Or he, I overheard him telling when, in a group of us saying that he was he's either a member or does stuff at the Upright Citizens Brigade, which is a, oh. improv acting and yeah, comedy. Yeah. yeah. So that was really cool. Yeah. And for context, everybody got to hear these, but it didn't. This is that this one part is not going to translate well for audio. Um, everybody laughs in the middle of his presentation because he puts these words up to say, I just wanted to put this one clip in. Because oh, yeah. Because it was funny. Which and is it's, true. It's, it, with the little kid screaming, with the stuff coming out of his mouth. And Her. The, the mom screaming. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Um, which was hilarious. So that was really funny. And, yeah, his presentation had the most humor in it. I'm biased because I, I met everybody and got to talk to them, so I knew everybody's theory was going to be great. I'm not so sure I would have ended with Matt, mm. knowing the content of it. I would have put it in the middle somewhere because it was so deep and then kind of put like comic relief at the end. That's just me. You make a good point there. Th- yeah. It's just because Matt's you had to internalize a little bit more. So I think it would be good to sit with it a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. But I thought I thought Connors was really funny. I thought Jeremiah's was great. I didn't I did not want to follow that. I mean, I, I believe in my theory very much, but I also believe in a lot of other theories. That's why I yeah, like yeah, like yeah. I said on stage, I like that everybody can come up with a theory and and it's supported you know, like in different ways. And that's why David makes this world and Mark made this world and it's got all this different things. So I, I, I thought Jeremiah's was well thought out. I thought it was well done, well thought out. That was the one that was very, was very like almost clear cut ending. Like this is what I think, this is what it is and da da. And it yeah. really made you think for two seconds. You're like, okay. Cause that he's not wrong in a lot of ways of the way I thought originally about that ending that well, that Cooper succeeded. See, there's looking at it as Cooper succeeded. There's looking at it Cooper failed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I've looked at it both ways. I mean, mine ha- tends to believe that it's more about his liberation, so about being body savage. So for me, it's it's that ending is a little darker. Mm-hmm. But like there was, I think a Reddit user, and I forgive me, I don't know the Reddit user's name, but who thought that that ending is the figure eight. Yeah, piece yeah. to it and when she screams she breaks that one and she wakes up and it's Laura back in 89 so when Cooper asks what year year it is it's really 1989 she wakes up and that was all a dream in itself yep Go could back. it be okay so let's as we're talking theories another theory just popped in my head could it be Cooper's dream from 1989 where he dreams about this blonde girl yeah, oh, you're, yeah you're talking about with me. yep uh, yes uh, uh, 
uh, yeah, Cole, I, I had a dream uh, last night, and let me tell you about it and stuff. That's crazy. Because so, that always perplexed me that all of a sudden, Firewalk with me, he's saying he knows of Alora Palmer in, in his dream, but when he enters Twin Peaks, you never hear him say. Not in the beginning. That's yeah. what I'm saying. So what? What? So my thought is, could season three? B, what year is this? Is he? Is it him? Is it he dreaming when he's back and he tells and then and then he hears we're not going to talk about Judy and it starts the whole point from that point on and him yeah, going to Twin Peaks and everything I like else. That. I, I mean, mean and makes... Lynch has been saying that you know, Fire Walk with Me is more important than people think than than it's led to believe in the beginning, but it is more more important to the return than most. Yeah, and I had this this theory before that I'm like this. Is, Dougie and all this stuff, it's just it's in his head and he needs to get out. And then my I stuck with that, but at the same time, as the series progressed, I'm like, I'm trying to like make it work. And But after thinking about it, I still feel like it works because I feel like it's just layers upon layers of something else. It's not it's him, his odyssey out in him with Carrie Page is just another layer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that kind of falls in what he was saying about these layers of um, his psyche, where he is. Is, is it a dream upon another dream, another layer? Um, well, if you look at look at Christopher Nolan's, what is it? Christopher Nolan's yes, um, um, Inception. Inception, yes. I mean, dream upon a dream upon a yeah, dream upon a yeah, dream, and yeah. they get further and further and further down, and it's like, what is real, what is not, you know, kind of thing. Yep. Um, the other, the other thing, the other day, and I said to Lindsay, I felt like such a like duh moment. I'm like Dougie Douglas fir yes. trees. Yeah. Yep. I'm like, hmm. I'm like, if he was gonna give himself a name, you know what I mean? Like, cause he would yes. love Twin Peaks so much. I don't, I don't know. That was, and I'm like, I'm sure people have thought of that, but nobody said it out loud. So I'm like, I'm gonna be that person. I'm gonna say it out loud. I yeah. I think we might have mentioned that. Like I it probably, is. I, yeah, yes. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. That makes me feel better. And I also thought, like... Well, Carrie Page, the missing page of the diary. Yes. We, yep. So you have that little boy and you have that drugged up girl mm -hmm. across the street from the... the yeah, the house. 119. The 119 yeah. lady. I was like, isn't that interesting that you have Janie and the little boy? It was the little boy's birthday. But when we when we show the drugged up girl, he's got a red balloon. A red balloon, like it was a birthday. What if that's their psyche? What if Janie, &E, that little boy, that's a drugged like up it's girl. an alternate dimension part, part like a you different need turn. Yeah, this other person to kind of feed this other layer, and like, what if that's them? Like, it's weird because those two people, those two characters, stick out to me. But nobody's ever really talked about them. Why do they exist? And I always spot the parallel between Janie and the little boy. Sunny Jim. Her, Sunny Jim. And, the, and her, the drugged up woman, and her little boy. It's just weird. Yeah, it is weird. It's a weird parallel. The red balloon. The red balloon's always showing up. I don't know. It's very odd. I want well, to Lynch know has a, Lynch has that. a tendency to do that. Because let's look. Because I'm, I'm writing a piece right now for Lynch Night with Blue Velvet. And I'm talking about how... Lynch has a tendency to take something as innocent as the town of Lumberton and and flip it over on its side and show it the underbelly. But yep. he does it with a lot of his work. He likes to show that the opposites of... Mm -hmm. He likes to show that everything good can have something that's not so good about it. Or And I don't, I don't want to say evil because it's not... But he says everything that's evil, flip it on its other side, could have a touch of good. Like mm -hmm. the moment where Frank 
is watching Dorothy on stage sing Blue Velvet and he gets choked up and you see him tear up. For that one moment, you, you feel Frank's humanity and, and you feel for him and you're like, wait, this person's God awful. Like, how can I feel this? But it's Lynch does that. It's he, he reveals something about himself in that capacity of, of being, you know, everybody has an innately, maybe something innate in them good, a little something. Yeah. The yeah. tiniest little tulpa bead, uh-huh. you know, like the bead, you know, yeah, or yeah. seed or whatever you want to call it. Which, and in the return, the same thing. It's like, you know, you give Diane the tulpa, but I don't think original Diane said F you as much as this Diane did. No. I just don't. I don't think that was something that would be in her character from, from when she wakes up the one and only Cooper. I mean, that, that person is completely different than, so even, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That was so unless, that's her dark side. I mean, unless yeah. tulpas are... Tulpas are with all your memories, but it's the darker side of you, maybe. Mm. Except for when it's on the other side, because remember, Cooper gave part of himself. And Frank, Frank and I were talking about this today at lunch. Cooper gave a bit of himself, and it seemed like, okay, as soon as he did that, the Dougie, the happy part of Cooper that we knew, like the coffee yep. Cooper, left, and it left this Richard character. You know what I mean? Whereas the opposite way, okay, Dougie was, Mr. C pulled out, his thing and the Dougie was into gambling and was into you know mm-hmm. hookers and was into you know the things the seedy part yeah, so it's yeah. like was and it it was that part of his like amused side do you know what I mean like mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. the Mr. C we saw at the end of the season two had a sense of humor had had a sense like he like smiled and laughed and the crazy how's Andy how's Andy you know kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. But then we see him again in in season three and all of a sudden he's stone faced and very serious and very. So it tends to be I don't know. I don't know I that that I, that's something I'd like to explore a little bit more because yeah, I think yeah. I think there's something to that. I agree. Because I mean if like the 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 story that Albert tells Tammy about. The blue rose, the first blue rose case. Mm-hmm. What's the blue rose name? Lois? No, Lois Duffy. And she murdered or whatever, and then it was, but it was, they were both Lois Duffy. And it's like, okay, w- good. And she was so tortured. She was the good one was so tortured that she killed herself. So it's kind of like, okay, is there really that? If it's a tulpa and it's thing, is that does one get whatever you're not, mm-hmm. or one of uh, half of what your that personality is? I don't know. Yeah, something to think about. No, I'll just say, um, you know, you're talking about um, season two Cooper and, uh, you know, smashing his head in the mirror and how he seems, yeah, he seems more mischievous, I guess. And I kind of think, how does Bob fit into this? Because at least when I originally saw it, I thought, oh, this is Bob. Because Bo- Leland was a little bit more kind of mischief and yeah. like he seemed a little bit more grinning and evil. and But... And so you want, at least in season three, it seems like Mr. C is more in control than Bob is. Yeah, um, that's it's an interesting thought. But then I then I think of this. He's been with Bob has been with him for 25 years. So that's going to change you. I mean, you do really mean maniacal stuff. That's going to change you. That's not going to make you, you know, like whereas Leland only had him, Bob, with him. Not for how long? Do we know how long? Since he was a kid. Well, kid, because Bob came to blood, went to yeah, but I threw matches at him at the uh, Pearl Lakes. Yeah, it could have been closer because oh. he was he was at the kid. See, it's weird because there's so many theories with that. Because I always felt before season three, yeah, that Leland was um, that I if you take away the supernatural part, yeah, I just thought Leland as a child didn't have much to do. 
So the idle hand, what, what's the saying? Idle hands yeah, are the devil's playground. Yeah. I thought in a sense that he was bored out of his mind. He was neglected by his parents. They were just shoving outside. And um, the devil came to play with him in a, in a metaphorical sense yep. that he became, he did some evil, he did some bad things as a kid and it stuck with him. The, on a just a metaphor level, but then the metaphor level would be this man threw matches at him and got him to do evil things, and that would be him just being bored. And I don't know. I look at so many different levels of that, but then when you get to the supernatural, then it's like this being that took a, that possessed him. Yeah. Because we always say, do we want to believe a father could do that to their daughter? You want to believe that maybe he was good. There was some good in him. That he, there was, and then I want to. I do believe a thing possessed him, and sometimes it didn't always have him. Because in Firewalk with Me, he'd be crying, right? And he's remorseful. And then when Bob left him, it's like, oh my God! And I see Laura, and she's beautiful, and he wants to be redeemed. He doesn't want to be a monster to his own daughter. Yeah, I, I don't... So it's very complicated. See, it is, because I, there, Mike Nathanson I interviewed, who was on The Punisher, stamp sign on The Punisher, and we were discussing Leland, and he goes, I don't... Th-, and he's under the deduction that Leland is not such a babe in the woods. Like, it's not... He's not completely innocent in this capacity, which is mm-hmm. an interesting way to look at it. If you look at it that way, okay, Bob is the evil that men do well, yep. but is okay, Is was there evil in him to begin? And then Bob exacerbates that because we know that Cooper is not, Cooper, we, from season one, we know Cooper, we think Cooper is the white knight, the greatest uh-huh. guy ever. And then in season two, he admits to coveting, you know, Wyndham Earl's wife and, you know, a lot of other things and he was involved in and stuff. And so he's not as squeaky clean as we make up. So it goes to say, if when Bob inhabits you, does it take that part that may be evil in you and exacerbate it to a, a higher level? Maybe. So did Leland have this little bit in him already, and then Bob took it and exacerbated? So yeah, maybe we all have that, and if you have that flame, firewalk with me, yeah, you have that yeah. flame that engulfs you. Right, right. So yeah. it's 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 interesting from that thought. If you allow that flame to get too big, you can't put it out. Right. So maybe that would be that's Bob. You can't put that out. It just consumes you. Leland had those moments of humanity, like you say, like with because Booth. Because here's you an know? interesting thought, and the, and I I brought this up to I believe Cameron and Lindsay last night, but I haven't brought it up to anybody else, and I'm going to bring it up to you guys now. When in season three, when Cooper's talking to the Wyndham Earl FBI box, as I like to call it. Um, and people were speculating that it's Judy or Sarah or whatever. Hires an interesting thought. What if it was Leland? What if Leland, saying find Laura, sends Cooper on a path to find Laura, but he because he does that because he wants Bob to come back out to, because he has to bring it back in. He has to bring Laura back in, right? Mm-hmm. And Bob is with the bad Cooper, and so it would, in a way getting him so... Because Leland was with him for, if you're saying, from as a kid for a yeah. long time, and they were one, with one, he's probably missing out on that power or that Garmin Bosia or whatever being stuck in the lodge. Who's to say it's not him and he wants to be back with Bob? That's like, I thought theory. that would be an interesting kind of way to look at it, too. 
that's a good that's a good I like yeah, that too. just just like just to too. think something to think about something different because there it could be any number of people yeah like it, originally it's funny when Albert was being sort of sketchy I said well what if it was Albert like you know and we because we he's the only one that's staying pure but maybe he's not so pure like maybe he wants to get in on the, you know I mean who knows but I'm glad yeah. they didn't do that but I'm and they didn't perceive it that way but for for a little while I did because the mm. way because Miguel didn't tell Gordon about the Argentina guy and you know and then he was like and I you know Cooper was off the grid and I did it you know there was things that I'm like huh that doesn't sound like Albert to me they all forgot things too even Gordon well, Cole was like I didn't it tell you this it bothers me that there wasn't I'm like thinking you guys were there like what are you talking about and then like Michael um with a uh, hawk and now yeah. hawk is like um hawk knows all about the lodges from season two right he tells he tells Cooper about the lodges, and in this, in season three, it's sort of like. No, he knows. He knows about the lodges, because but he, he doesn't tells tell. He doesn't tell um, Truman anything, really. Yes, he does. He shows him the whole map and tells him. He does do that. You're right, but in the beginning, he's just kind of like because they were going through it because of the way, and it's. I think it's because how Margaret approached him, and Margaret said just gave him some information, and it has to do with Cooper, and you know, find this and stuff. Yeah, I guess I I agree with the fact that maybe he didn't want to indulge too much because Truman was kind of like. This place is crazy, and it's not the it's not the real it's you know. And I Frank love Robert Truman. Forrester, but I. You miss you miss. Well, I'm, of course I miss Michael Anki, and I, I mean that's that's neither here nor there. But I almost wish that he wasn't Harry wasn't so um, Harry, Frank wasn't so. He he was a bookhouse boy. He knows mm-hmm. the evil that existed in the wood. I that know. did not come through. And and like I said, I love Robert Forrester, but I wish there was more of that where he, because yeah. he knew Hawk. It's not like this was new. I know. That's what I'm saying. It you just know what fell I mean? Off. I mean, well, and I hate to say that. I take that from Mark's book. But if Mark wrote the book before season three or during season three, then some of that must have rubbed off. So it should have been, I think, that capacity in that in in that sense, it should have been. So we did learn something. We learned that Mark Mark Frost is really the person who came up with the owls and all that stuff. That wasn't David Lynch. So w- I think we someone told us that when David Lynch was off directing, Mark Frost was writing the book, and David Lynch said, "You can do whatever you want." So there, yeah, that's there true. might be a disconnect there. Yeah, and I also, you know, you've seen some of the documentary, it seems like Forrester didn't really know how to react with his character. Like, there was times where he would ask David Lynch, like, okay, so my secretary, (laughs) and what do I do with her? And, like, so you wonder if if the actor's uncertainty rubbed off on the actual character Mm. of Truman, too. That, like, yeah. Richard Beamer, he literally recorded all his stuff in one day, and he felt like he was never at home with this character. Yeah, I think he had two days. And, two, and the, yeah, but yeah. he felt like it was so kind of rushed, and he never fell back into it because it was just kind of like go through the motions. Ladies and gentlemen, we have arrived. This station stop is New Haven. Be mindful of the gallon exiting in. Have a great day. A lot happened today. I mean, we can go on forever. Yeah, sorry, maybe we, we got off topic, and I apologize. That's usually what we do when we get together, so that doesn't surprise me on a long train ride. No, but it's been great to have you back on the show. It's been a while. Yeah, well, because we didn't do a live show this last one. And, and I'm sorry, it's my fault because I'm a busy person, it's and May is a busy month. The end of June, we are doing a live show. But it's only going to be Ben and me, right? Ben and you, and you are going to have you guys bring out the cards. I'll be on vacation, but we're going to have... I think we're going to do a Twitter. I think Twitter was... I yes, think Twitter I think was you should do Twitter yeah. live. Yeah. So that, that's going to be happening, and we have our, our next rewatch will be coming out sh- soon, probably next week. Uh, which What episode is it, Ben? 
two. Two. Episode two. So we're gonna have Maya, Andreas, and John Thorne. Uh, That's a quite the crew. I love it. Yes, it's gonna be really good. It was great to meet Maya and Andreas today. Yes. Yeah, that was the first time meeting. I mean, we've ta- we just talked to each other on, and on Twitter. It was great to see Brett. Yes. Me, Brett, you guys met her at Festival Disruption, but I hadn't met her yet, so that was cool too. Yeah. It was it, great to spend some time with her. And you, you meet these people in real life, you feel like you've known them all your life. I know, isn't it incredible? That's I what know. we said. It's like we've been friends for years. I you thought know? you and Brett knew each other no. prior. No. The way you guys were talking. You know? Yeah, no, it, no, we just. She's great. Yeah, she's great. She's great. It's um, good to have somebody, that, it's, yeah, these friends so close. Brian, you know, being able to see Andreas for the first time in person, yeah. he's in Denmark, so to be able to actually connect, that was pretty special. It was. He gave us a big hug when he saw us, which was great. Also, David Bushman, who was there, he told me on, uh, he texted me to say, to say hi to everybody, because he has a huge following, but he was in the Cagnito. He was there. He didn't say hi to us or anybody. No, I didn't even know he was there. And then he teased me through text message. <laughs> but David Bushman, hello, David Bushman. Yes, hello. Anyway, I guess this is our show, and we'll be back next week with uh, Community Rewatch. Community Rewatch.